Welcome back, everyone. We are live for another week of Growing With My Fellow Growers. I am your host, Jack Greenstock, joined as always by an amazing panel. First, I'm going to kick it off to the American one. Welcome back, buddy. You're on mute. Leaving me hanging. You're still muted, Tao. I don't know if you uh, went AFK. No, it just, yeah, something just happened on my end. It said I was going live. I had to hit the button. But yeah, you caught me off guard. I'm usually the last one. Hello, everyone. Jack, great to see you. Everyone in the panel, it's always good to be here. And everyone in chat, I'm really thankful to be here. I've been having some uh, issues that I couldn't make it. And uh, today, I like made sure to set aside and just enjoy hanging out with you guys and chatting it up. So I'm glad to be here. We appreciate that. I'm sorry I threw you off. I do normally uh, save you for last, but this time I changed it up a little bit and uh, surprised you, clearly. Um, but next up, Spartan Growing. How's it going? It's going pretty good. Uh, what's up, everybody? I'm Spartan Grown. You can find me on Instagram at Spartan Grown, all one word, or shoot me an email at spartangrown at gmail.com, and I can answer your synthetic or your organic questions. I do, I do both. It's great to have uh, experience in both, and uh, we got a little bit of a hot topic tonight, but next I'm going to pass it to Dr. MJ. Hey, yeah, I'm Dr. MJ Coco from CocoForCannabis.com. I am uh, excited to be here, and I'll be able to sort of settle down and enjoy a show for the first time in a while. Always a, a pleasure to be on with the rest of these panelists and with you, Jack, and welcome to everybody in the chat. I saved my dad joke for a week after Father's Day with the hot topic there, and the chat will understand what I'm talking about in just a little bit. But next up, Matthew Gates. Yeah, hey, everyone. This is Matthew Gates, the Integrated Pest Management Specialist. And um, like uh, many people know already, you can find my content about pests and cannabis on my YouTube channel, Sentinel, on my Instagram at SyncAngel, and also on Twitter at SyncAngel. And recently, I was just on the Future Cannabis Project, uh, talking about like for almost four hours IPM with a, a few other panelists and I implore you to check it out. I had a lot of really interesting points to make and I think we had a lot of really cool um, topics, both basic and advanced covered. I enjoyed it. Uh, after the live, I saw their like post and then I realized that I missed it, but then I watched the uh, recorded version and it was great. And uh, I think you had a lot of great input there and I uh, always appreciate, appreciate your input here. So uh, thank you again for joining us. Next up, Brandon Rust. What's going on, everybody? I'm in a different spot today, uh, in the process of moving. Um, so I don't know how well my audio is or anything, but uh, it's always good to be here with the rest of the panel. I wasn't able to be here uh, last week, but uh, I always look forward to, you know, having our conversations and kind of going back and forth talking about growing and all the different kind of aspects that are involved. We appreciate your input and we uh, always appreciate you being on the show. Even though you weren't here last week, I quoted you and how you talked about how about half your budget at, I believe it was Black Label Organics was dedicated to IPM and just uh, as a response to some people kind of complaining that we talked a lot about IPM, but just showing the importance of it. Um, so next up we have Kyle Breeder. Hey, what's everybody? My name is Kyle Breeder. Um, I'm a cannabis breeder and seed maker. If anybody's looking for seeds, I do have a website that you can find uh, my work at pbreeding.com and uh, all my social media accounts are predicated breeding. And yeah, glad to be here. Glad we're still doing this and I'm glad we're all doing okay. And thanks for hosting, Jack. 
always happy to be back myself, uh, happy and healthy and able to show up and host. So I uh, will go and introduce next. And I believe the last one with us this evening, because Noah said he won't be joining us, uh, but Aaron the Grower. What's up, panel? <clears throat> Excited to be here this week. Um, I am Aaron the Grower. You can check me out at atgacres.com. I forgot who I was for a second. Um, and uh, ATG Acres on Instagram, also on YouTube. So, yeah, excited to be here this week. After smoking on some of your grand animals, I could see uh, why sometimes it's uh, easy to forget your name. Uh, that's some potent stuff. I was smoking on some of it the other day and had one of those moments myself. But uh, animals brain for sure. It'll definitely do it to you. But I think we had a great topic that was brought up a little bit before we went live. And it's talking about uh, a lot of us here in the Northern Hemisphere, at least, are coming into the hotter months. Uh, summer is quickly approaching. Some of us are already dealing with uh, heat waves already. So I just wanted to uh, pass it maybe first to Dr. MJ and get some of his quick tips on how to uh, grow into the summer. Um, you know, it's <laughs> quick tip is be prepared um, if you can to have sort of the, the proper equipment to be able to to deal with managing your climate. Um, if you don't have the proper equipment to be able to deal with managing the climate and you have to sort of, um, you know, get through things. And there's a whole lot of tips, I think, um, in terms of how to make subtle adjustments to try to allow your plants to deal with hotter temperatures. I mean, this is actually something I'm not really well set up to grow in the heat of the summer here. And I usually take this time of year, well, I'm usually finishing up the, the spring autoflower challenge now, and then I don't grow in July and in, until like the end of August, I'll start growing again because it gets too hot. Um, and so um, I've been sort of, I'm aware of those issues. And, um, you know, most of the time in the spring autoflower challenge, it's getting into late June and I'm like, it, it's struggling. It's um, well into the hundreds here. So, um, and the office, the room where the, my grow is doesn't get sort of cooled well by the rest of the house. So it's really not well set up for, for dealing with the heat. Um, one tip, I think, you got to think of your plants like you would think of like your dog. I mean, if you had a dog on a hot day, what are you going to do? You're going to make sure that the dog has plenty of water um, because the dog can sort of tolerate being out in the heat. You can tolerate being out in the heat as long as you have plenty of water. And plants going to behave fairly similarly to that. When the, the vapor pressure deficit is really what we're dealing with, though, um, when the heat goes up, the vapor pressure deficit goes up. That means that the plant will like to lose more water to the air. It would like to sort of uh, transpire more water out into the air. And in order to do that, it's got to be able to get enough water um, through its roots. And so having access to water and, and what you really want to do there is, is sort of if you're dealing with um, fertigation, if you're in conventional um, fertigation, then you'd want to lower your EC lower the dose um, because the plant's gonna be A, moving more water through it and it doesn't need to be like, the water itself doesn't need to be carrying as much nutrients. Um, the other aspect of that is that it allows it to sort of cool itself better. It allows that the, the lower the EC is, the easier it is for the plant to absorb that water through the roots. And so when the plant needs to lose a lot of water through the leaves to keep itself cool, lowering the EC makes it easier for the water to sort of get into the plant in the first place. Um, 
I think that's a that's a big tip in terms of sort of how to adjust. And I think a lot of people overlook that. Um, I don't know. I'll talk for a while. I'll let somebody else sort of chime yeah, in. Those are all good. Stuff. I think uh, one that I've heard you and many others say in the past, and I currently do, whether it's uh, summer or winter, is running your lights on during your nighttime. So the plants yes. day yes. cycle is uh, during the basically coolest period of the day. And then when the lights go off, it's the hottest period of the day to basically prevent running the lights while it's hot outside as well. And, yeah, uh, and I mean, that the, the flipping the schedule like that works well in the winter too. I mean, it just works well no matter where you live and sort of no matter what climate you're in because everywhere on the planet, it's cooler at night than it is during the day. Um, and you're adding heat to that part of that. So you might as well add the heat to the cooler part of the day. Absolutely. Um, assuming you're in a light sealed space, then it should be no problem. Yeah, that definitely has been a tip that I think has helped a lot of people who maybe just didn't think about it because they're up during the day and they're like working on their plants during the day and they want it to lights go off at night when maybe they go to bed and they think about it that way. But it's uh, something that some people overlook and for that one person that hears this and it might help. Uh, it might yep. No, it's definitely, it's absolutely agree. It's a point worth repeating. I think a lot of new growers don't do that until they hear about it and then they'll start doing it. But yeah, um, the, the dark period for your plants should be the hottest time of the day. Um, there's, I, I can't even imagine sort of why you wouldn't set it up that way unless you had to like have labor costs and you need to be in the garden during a certain time of the day. But most people can set it up so that they're in their gardens doing their work in the late, you know, evening right after the light turns on or in the morning before the light turns off. So, yeah. I have, uh, I think Brandon uh, Rust has dealt with some heat growing out here in Southern California. Another thing we kind of talked about in past shows, um, but some of them have been lifted off of YouTube and they're only on Stitcher now, was uh, like the rolling blackouts and things like that. But also just in the general uh, gist of growing in the heat, Brandon, I'm curious if you have any thoughts about uh, growing in the summertime and any tips or tricks that might help out your plants uh, be more successful. It's a pretty broad question. It depends on your condition. If you're indoor, outdoor, so this show originally was the cheap home grow for indoor growing. So we'll focus primarily on indoor unless we uh, specifically are on like the topic of outdoor growing. Sure. You know, um, for indoor, you know, I always had mini splits that were able to handle at least twice in BTUs as each light was going to be uh, producing. So that was kind of one of my rules of thumb is to make sure that you had enough uh, air conditioning to keep your room cool. Um, you know, well, let's say if it, there's a failure, like I think Noah the Groa is not joining us tonight because he had an air conditioner go out. So he's in the process of dealing with that. And I know in California, sometimes they're just sort of screwed with the rolling brownouts or blackouts where they cut off your power because they're afraid that. The or, fire or if there's fire hazards, I have I, I had it happen uh, before I actually moved out to Oklahoma right before. I think we actually talked about it on the show, probably. Uh, we did an episode about ago. it. Yeah, um, you know, having a backup generator, um, even if it's just like, you know, a little 2000 watt Honda generator, if you're, you know, if you're reliant on your medicine and you are growing indoor and you know that you're in an area where you're, you know, where there's a potential that you could have a power outage, which is crazy because it's happening to us as we speak. Literally, our power just went out 
and it just got turned back on right now. It's been off for like maybe an hour and a half, right? And it's like, well, we have this, you know, 50,000 watt diesel generator and it doesn't work, right? And it's hooked up and it's like ready to go. And we were just waiting for, um, you know, the electrician to come out and we've been waiting forever. And it's like, man, what do you do? Well, can't do shit if you're not prepared one and there's no point in panicking if something does happen and you're not prepared because whatever's going to happen is going to happen nothing you can do about it right because you should have had your shit together yeah that brings up a great point about the generators you get people with generators should be checking them like once a month because yeah what's the use of it if it doesn't work when you need it you might when you need it so it's like, okay, hey, the generator that we have, we try to use it and it, and it doesn't work. So now we have to get an electrician. Uh, you know, it's just um, be prepared. It's a Boy Scout motto. Um, if, you, if you're reliant on power, especially for something like that, and your garden could potentially be at risk, have a little generator where you can at least operate some like LED floodlights on the same time schedule that you would normally have and fans or maybe even just a dehumidifier, you know, just do the minimum of what you can, but try to keep schedule and try to make sure that those rooms don't get too hot and humid because that's the biggest, you know, potential hazard is to have those rooms fluctuate and then have, you know, all your flowers mold. Um, so it's really about, you know, you can get away with, you know, negative situations if you're prepared and you have everything and you can put on, keep your light cycle and keep that either air really circulated and dehumidified. That's the best thing that you could do in my opinion. Those are all good tips. Um, I'm curious if, I don't think I heard anybody say it so far, but I think from one of the past shows where we talked about this, uh, maybe silica was brought up or something else, um, like a yucca maybe. Yucca is like a plant that can withstand a lot of heat. And if you give yucca, it's uh, something that can help your plants deal with heat as well. I, I might be misremembering that, but Spartan looks like he's nodding his head and maybe I'll yeah, throw it to you. No, just there, there's some truth to that. They've, they've seen that uh, plants can tolerate better you know i think the main benefit we get from that from with yucca is actually just the swings in the temp in the climate um that occur every time that you open the door to your tent um right. it, it it shows that plants can tolerate sort of change rapidly changing climate better with yucca and also that they may be able to ex tolerate extreme heat I've you always mean, thought that, that was so cool mean, because I was like, so you mean one plant eats a little part of the other plant and then it takes on the properties of that other plant? I thought that that was really cool, but that actually does happen. You're, you're talking about this or this, is it uh, right? extract? You're, so? talking about, you're talking about silica, right? Um, no, sorry. I'm talking about yucca. Is it a yucca ferment or like a yucca extract? Or it's just a yucca powder. Yeah, it's a yucca root. Okay. I've never. I've never. I've I've heard of Isn't it. Isn't that what you brought up, Jack? Am I just totally? Oh, no, you're right. Yeah, no, I've yeah, heard that. That is what I brought up, but um, I, I was just kind of quoting from one of the past shows, and I think yeah, you had yeah, mentioned yucca. that. Yeah, but... yeah. 
Uh, Yucca does a number of things for plant. I mean, the real reason that we use it is as a as a surfactant. Uh, um, but um, what an agent. agent. Yeah. Um, but it does do some other things. And one of the things it does is it, it affects the way plants can, can tolerate changes in climate. And um, I think the evidence that it actually really helps them tolerate extremes in climate might be, I, I don't know, it seems pretty good, I guess. So yeah, both those things that plants can tolerate um, swings in climate and extreme climates better if they're given yucca extract. I just think that's one of those cool, more like, I don't know if it's novel or unique, but it's something that I do believe is the case. And it's something that's worth sharing. Again, like uh, we're talking about heat, a lot of people are experiencing. I feel it right now here in San Diego. Thankfully, I'm very close to the beach. So the highest it ever gets here is like mid 80s, maybe touches in the 90s. But um, where you're at, Dr. MJ, it seems to get a little bit hotter. So I'm <laughs> fortunately able to, uh, you know, yeah, air conditioning at all. We all deal with that. So, you know, when you... <laughs> when you open the, the door to your tent, the climate inside your tent, most people that measure that have sensors on both places know this, that the, especially the humidity inside your tent is usually way higher than the humidity outside of your tent. Um, the temperature is usually higher inside the tent than outside of the tent too. And we try to like keep it within those ranges, right? But when you open the door to that tent, the, the climate in there crashes pretty suddenly. And that's actually really stressful for plants. It's one of the reasons that you shouldn't just be going in and out of your tent, um, you know, willy nilly, unless there's sort of a reason to. Um, because every time the, the sort of the humidity builds up and then you crash it down when you open the door and then it builds back up and all the plants adjusting to that. Um, and giving it yucca apparently helps it make those adjustments with less stress. I saw a Spartan grown earlier. He had been nodding his head at that moment, but I also think that he's got some tips for growing in the heat and also just weather related. Uh, I know that there's some crazy rains going on in Michigan. So maybe you could give us an update of what's going on over there as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, most of the stuff that I had to add was outdoor related. So I don't know if you want to cover that or not. I just, that's where my head is. I think it's worth tossing it in. I know even though I just mentioned that we're kind of primarily, uh, at least like by title, we were initially focused on indoor growing. We've touched on everything from greenhouse to outdoor and everything in between. So if you have something that relates to heat in general, I think it'd be uh, worth tossing in. I think Aaron, the grower, will have some greenhouse and outdoor related things as well later on. So I'll just go through them quick. A few of them that I had, I just wrote them down as I thought of them so I wouldn't forget. But uh, shade cloth, that's probably the cheapest fix. Uh, you can get different... I don't know what they call it, ratings, how much they block, how much of the sun that they'll block. Um, you get them out of the direct sun, that, that helps on these really hot days. Um, cover your soil, man, cover your soil with mulch or something like that. If you get a good amount of mulch on the soil, then that uh, top layer of the soil can stay moist and you're not gonna have to water as much. And it's also gonna keep the temperature of the root zone way cooler. If you keep that root zone cooler, it's gonna help the plant out even though it's 110 or however hot it is. Um, water early in the morning. Um, if you water during the heat of the day, you can do that. But um, the only time I'll water during the day is if the ground, if it's, how do I want to explain it? If it's still somewhat moist, don't let them dry completely out and then water a dried out plant in the middle of the hot day because it's going to pull up that cold ass water and you're going to have issues. I fried up a uh, some vegetables that way pretty quick, trying to save them because they're all wilted during the day and then fried them up. I should have just waited till I got cooler during the night and watered. So that's another tip. And then what was, the, oh, this one's kind of indoor or outdoor. As the heat goes up, your pest pressure is likely to increase. 
because they're going to be breeding faster and moving around more. And just like in the cold, they tend to slow down a little bit. So at, on these hot days, get out there with your IPM and, and, and take a look because if something gets established, it's not going to take long to start reproducing in this hot weather. That's an excellent point, and uh, I think it transitions well into kind of passing it over to Matthew and maybe um, what pests you typically see more of. I can think of at least one in California, like spider mites, being one that seems to explode when heat comes around, but there's probably several others. Uh, so I'm curious if you have any thoughts on uh, IPM when heat begins to rise. Well, at least in our hemisphere neck of the woods, um, I think that sort of the starting with the obvious thing, is that it usually gets hotter around, you know, the, the middle month, the summer, uh, July area, at least where we are. And um, a lot of times summer, the summer season is associated with like the height of a lot of insect population growth because insects and a lot of other, well, insects and mice are exotherms. So like I said, on the, um, the Willow Creek Alliance presentation on the FCP, the, uh, the exothermic, you know, uh, organisms, they can't regulate their temperature, but we can, for example, at least to some degree. And so when things get hotter, uh, all those metabolic processes are a lot easier to do uh, for, you know, to, to super oversimplify it. But uh, another thing to consider is that that's, that's sort of a peak efficiency, kind of like your car in miles per hour. It's sort of a peak uh, efficiency for your for your fuel use and and um, if you go over that you know it, it's uh, it's less efficient. Once we start getting past, uh, in my opinion, for a lot of the common pests like spider mites, uh, western flower thrips, various aphids uh, like the cannabis aphid, the rice root aphid, um, even whitefly, those populations are going to start to have problems like molting. They're going to have problems with like. Um, you know, just shedding their skin in the first place because way too hot and they can't find a microclimate, you know, among the foliage because the foliage just like on a hot, on a hot day, you might stand under a tree and it's quite a bit cooler. The foliage of the plant can shade an, an insect. That's why a lot of times they live on the ventral side of leaves. Um, if the, for those of you who have noticed that kind of, that that happens a lot, that's part of the reason. Um, so a lot of insects are just generally going to be more active when it's hotter. But uh, once for a lot of these organisms around 30 degrees Celsius, I would say starts to get kind of harrowing for them. And, and so, so does it for us um, in some places in the world where it gets even um, you know, hotter, like even uh, 40 degrees and some places it's getting up to 50 degrees in some places. I, uh, I follow a, um, a profile on Twitter that tracks like high temperatures around the world. And it's kind of horrifying. I'm assuming that's Celsius, 50 degrees Celsius. Yes. Holy yes. shit. Pretty, pretty hot. Yeah. Yeah, I clocked uh, 115 Fahrenheit here last summer. It hasn't gotten that high again. That's what, 47 or something? Something like that. Yeah, that's pretty hot. Yeah, it was pretty hot. 50 degrees uh, Celsius to Fahrenheit is 122 degrees Fahrenheit for anybody out there who's not familiar with the metric. I had to do the Google conversion, but that is very hot. Like Arizona and like Death Valley are like a few of the only places I'm familiar with that get that hot. 
definitely would not want to be growing there. Um, <laughs> but I do hear and see people growing cannabis in the desert. So it is possible. I know Matthew's uh, mentioned several times in the past some people in the Chaparral area of California that are growing in a somewhat desert-like cl- climate. And although they had some issues, what was it that ultimately, um, was it human interaction? Did somebody come and steal it or was there... I think something went awry with that growth. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what happens. It's um, there were some bandits, <laughs> jackers, rippers, whatever you want to call it. Well, yeah. they were, they just figured, hey, yeah, that's a lot of cannabis. I'm going to take that. And as my uh, friends politely explained to that. me when I when I said, hey, that's sort of a, you know, that doesn't make sense. What if you were to come back or whatever? You know, uh, my friends politely explained to me that that's a rational thought. But sometimes people out there in the high desert aren't thinking rationally for various reasons. Yeah, I've seen and uh, heard some stories from like Robert, Mr. Greenfingers, Thomas. He lives over in the Coachella Valley area. And uh, Brandon used to live over by one of the casinos. And there's some uh, crazy stuff that goes on in those areas if you're not careful. So it's uh, Wild West to some extent. Uh, The American one, it looked like you wanted to jump in there. Sorry, I cut you off. Well, no, I was just going to say that... uh... I hate rippers. And I, my idea a long time ago was to taint one of the plants with something deadly, but that could backfire. You know, the guy just rips it and sells it to someone that's yeah. not, you know, but that's yeah, likely to happen I, too. I just yeah, saw a I thing think for the punishment probably of death is, is a little yes. severe too. That, I'm just well, going to throw that out not, there. That, no, it's no, not. Right? You don't know talent. <laughs> that is fucking. That was hardcore. That's the, that's the way it works out here in Michigan too. All right, maybe not dead, but can we get make him very deathly ill, but not Let's die. not pretend that, the government wasn't trying thin, to do it in Mexico. Um, Paraquat was being sprayed on cannabis, which would get people violently ill and sometimes kill them if they were to consume it. And there's literally lawsuits right now for Paraquat being used on crops that like people are using it in their garden for other things. Um, but unfortunately, people got very, very sick. And I just, within this last week, saw on Instagram like a targeted ad saying, if you've been uh, injured or got like cancer or whatever from Paraquat, you can be part of this class action lawsuit type thing. So it is definitely something that was used with the intent of harming people that use cannabis, grow cannabis and uh, distribute all that things. Like they were trying to deliberately cause harm. So there's some nefarious people out there, whether it's- Yeah, this is a problem across agriculture. I mean, I was just reading about the big avocado heist uh, where people went and just harvested all the avocados. it, it, it's a, a thing there's actually a really old word for this it's called pradial larceny which is stealing um unharvested crops from somebody else's field an old pastime in some places the avocado trade is especially nefarious with all the stuff that's happening with the cartel in mexico right now but i think that's a little bit when did deeper this happen in, outside of cannabis than uh, we'll probably be getting into this evening spartan i'm sorry i didn't mean to cut you off Damn. Man, I was just asking uh, Dr. Coco when that happened. Was it recent? Yeah, like uh, just a few days ago, I think. Wait. Wow. Cheddar Bob, I see you in chat, dude. How many avocados are you sitting on, bro? <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah, he's out here talking about rippers, and we know it's a facade. It's definitely a smokescreen. <laughs> so there's like groups of people that just go in there and be like, 
I'm fucking danking all your avocados. It's a huge right. industry, man. It, yeah. it disappeared from San Diego. It used to be like San Diego was Avocado County, and then uh, avocados from Mexico took over for the most part, and uh, they've got a huge share. A lot of it is water use. Water is really expensive up here, and uh, it's, it's more difficult to get your hands I on, was, I guess, legally. I was literally just in the supermarket the other day, and I was like, man, why is this a Mexican avocado? And I was like, wouldn't it go? I was like, what up with like California, man? That's where all the avocados are at. Like you can grow avocados Not anymore. around in California. Yeah, they yeah, you that's can, the but cost of labor. Did they take like the them to Mexico and reship them back to America? Where was this stolen? In America? Come yeah, on. no, the avocado heist was here in California. Wow. There's still a whole okay. lot of avocados grown here in California. And the, the avocado market in, in California is also sort of uh, controlled by a monopoly, but yeah. It's smaller yeah, my, in San Diego. I'll just say, like, living here in San Diego, it, it was a group. big part of the culture. And the people used to have them in their backyards. They'd have orchards <laughs> that people, like Dr. MJ was talking about, they would yeah. say, I have this acre or whatever, and you come manage my land, and you can, you know, work, and we'll split the profit or yield or whatever it is, however they would agree to those terms. But a lot less people are doing it now because the cost of labor and I think it is a water. The thing. cost of the property too, Jack. They're subdividing those. They're building ADUs and stuff like that on those old orchard grounds. They're um, doing other things. There's still a lot of people if you get into North San Diego County that have orchards too. Actually, yeah, you know, on that on that point, a uh, flower grower that I've worked with, uh, many people have heard me uh, who are longtime followers regale you with stories about. Gerbera and Rose working um, on my end. And uh, the grower is actually doing exactly what we're describing here. They're moving to Mexico right now, um, partly because of labor and other reasons, and partly because of um, uh, land costs and things like that. Yeah. And uh, and it's gonna become, the, the area is gonna become like a, a what do they call them? Uh, like an ag an <laughs> no, it's flanked by like golf courses and stuff. But um, it's, ag it's zoned for ag, but I think it's going to become like an agra community or something like that, a little small, or an agra restaurant, some sort of like restaurant that also has like a small farm attached to it so they can like grow yeah, the plants farm to there. table place. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. It's going to be yeah. gentrified. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's already it in a place like that's it. a little bit gentrified, so. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, that's that's what the form of economic development kind of looks like uh, you take the same resources and you build higher value onto them. I mean, th that's what this whole plan of globalization has been about moving the lower skill, lower wage jobs to other places. Um, there's some real consequences of that, but um, yeah, it's anyways. On the topic of growing in the heat, because I think that's where we started off. Yeah, it is. I'll pass it back over to uh, Aaron, the grower, because I mentioned earlier that I'd like to get some of his thoughts as a, he grows outdoor as well as greenhouse, and he's got some indoor experience as well. So I'm sure he's got some uh, tricks up his sleeve about how to deal with the heat. I really like what everybody has said so far. You know, I was thinking about this the whole time, and I just, I got to say that as an outdoor grower, I'll keep it simple for outdoor advice. It's water often and water more like check on your plants um they're starting to droop water them you know it's i went up right before the show and watered my plants again for a second time and they're in 200 gallon pots it's 98 degrees here today but um that is literally 
the one thing you can do that will solve all of the plants heat problems under like 120 degrees. If you get a plant in a, an environment over 120 degrees, uh, shade cloth is the only way to save it because it's just so hot. <clears throat> I've seen plants just, you can just soak them and they're just, they're not going to handle that heat. Um, indoor, well, like Brandon said, just make sure that your HVAC is dialed in and you'll be good. I like that. Nice and simple. I'm just curious this year, if, uh, are your plants growing about the same speed that they typically do per season? Would you say it's a good season, a slow season or a fast season? Cause in my perspective, when I went up and visit you, I saw the plants and they're fairly small and it doesn't seem like it's been that long of a time for them to be fucking massive already. So I'm curious uh, how the season's been going for you. Um, that's a good question. Well, there's a couple factors. They, they've been monsters this year and they're very vigorous, but I've also, this year I'm growing from seed and past like 10 years, I've only popped like a dozen seeds. So they're definitely more vigorous for that reason, but this heat, they, they operate. I think Matt said that, you know, insects operate optimally with a bunch of heat in the middle of the summer. Um, I found that almost every variety I put outside operates really well between hundred and 110 degrees just with enough water and fertilizer. That's what I was going to say. Some of the plants love that, that extra heat. Yeah. I think it is crucial to note that, yeah, it's one of those things where when you have those resources, those prerequisites, then um, kind of it allows for things to, to work out sort of like a catalyst. But, you know, if you don't have the support, the catalyst can be, uh, it can have the opposite effect, I suppose. I was just hey, curious Aaron. for the outdoor growers, what the, coldest yeah. temperatures at nighttime would be for Spartan and for Aaron? Like, what are your nighttime lows during the season? In Michigan, it could be anything, dude. Like freezing? Oh, during your... sure. Yeah, I've had, I've had harvest with snow on my plants, dude. Uh, the, the low last night was 74, and that happened at 6 a.m., but that's really rare. It usually gets like 55 to 65 degrees at night. Hey, Aaron, I have a question for you about that um, outdoor at 100 to 110. Um, what relative humidity are you operating in there? Because I think that makes a huge difference. Usually uh, between 15 and 30 percent is okay. About so wicked low humidity, wicked low. Absolutely. That, and that's the only way. Good, good point. That's really the only way to operate. If you wouldn't do this in Florida, it'd be way too humid. See, yeah, I would have plants the more wouldn't be able to help. move enough water. So the exactly. reason that it, it, it's it, it's a weird sort of relationship. Oftentimes we would think if we're just thinking about VPD, if you were thinking, oh, well, the VPD is going to get out of control if the humidity is low and the temperature is high. And that's true. The VPD is going to be out of control. Uh, it's going to be wicked high but you need the plant to be transpiring water if it's 110 degrees out, period. If the relative humidity is too high, the plant won't be able to transpire enough water. That water evaporating off of the surface of the plant is what's gonna act as basically the coolant for that plant. Um, so I agree, Aaron, if you're gonna be trying to run outdoors at 110, you you really better have low relative humidity and be giving those plants a hell of a lot of really low EC water that they can just pump through themselves to keep themselves cool. And then, yeah, you'd, you'd probably be all right. <laughs> Brandon Russ has his hand up, so I'd like to let him jump in here. 
you also have to remember that a plant has to utilize energy to uptake this water and transpire. So being able to have not just adequate uh, moisture in your soil, but adequate amount of nutrient, because that's going to be your limiting factor. I think uh, if, if the, the nutrients are in the soil, I agree, you need to take that into consideration. But if your nutrients come in the water, I think you need to drop them almost down to like very low, very low in these kinds of situations. Otherwise, the, the plant won't be able to process enough. So just to be aware that you're going to be moving a lot more water through the plant. So uh, the, the amount of nutrients sort of in the water can be a lower dose, but you still have the same amount of soil. So if the nutrients are in the soil that, that you could actually deplete them because of the way you're pouring water through. That, that's so, what I'm basically talking about. Not yeah. so much, uh, not watering. Cause I don't typically, you know, water in the nutrient. I do water in nutrient, but it's not something that I do all the time. And when I'm doing it, it's usually, yep. you know, a, a micronutrient mineral sulfate. Um, but the, if the soil doesn't have adequate amount of nutrient in it, um, I think that that can, that's also going to be a limiting factor in the plant's ability to uh, perspire and, and. Yeah. I was going to ask. Like, of its metabolic functions, you know, because if it's, it's going to get, it's, it'll deplete. Right. So low EC thing. So, so are you basically overall, are you giving more fertilizer, um, but less per, per water? Me? So what, if it was, yeah, yeah. Um, doc. It was, if it was really hot out, right. What I want to do is I want to decrease the, overall like ppm of the soil the total amount of nutrient that's in there but i'd want to keep it balanced and sufficient right because so you need you're reducing the osmotic stress you're going to reduce the osmotic stress um so it can absorb what it needs to transpire if that makes sense like you, you have to have sufficiency still, but you want to drop it. Like, let's say if I'm looking yeah. at a soil test, you know, and I know it's going to be super, super hot and there's nothing that I can do about it for the next three months. I would make, I want to make sure that the mineral, because there's, there, you know, the minerals that fall in are on a lower, uh, uh, PPM, but that they are in sufficient balance. I, find I thought the beauty about more. capillary action was that it was mainly sort of not energy intensive. Well, that, yeah, that's it's I'm not. Saying. So I did want to comment on that. The plant doesn't really use energy to transpire. Um, it, it is the vapor pressure deficit ultimately that's creating the, the energy for that whole system to operate. Um, so it's not, it's not coming directly from the plant. And that water is going to be a little bit different than sort of the, the, the stuff that's going, it, it, we just have to think about it a little bit differently than the water that goes to the plant for photosynthesis and what's going on during photosynthesis in that, in that time period. So Aaron asked um, about like providing more nutrients. Yeah, Aaron, 
the plant in my situation, I would lower the, the um, electrical conductivity, but increase the amount of water that the plant was processing. So the total dose of nutrient would, would remain basically unchanged. Um, I'd be more concerned about the, the throughput of water for transpiration than I would be um, really about maintaining the, the nutrients for photosynthesis. Although I do definitely think that that's also a concern. I see a plant in this situation moving so much water through itself that as long as there's some nutrients in that water, it'll be, it'll be protected. Brandon's situation is different with a, a amended soil type of a situation. And I understand why he's thinking about it differently for the purposes of nutrition. Um, but for the purposes of just sort of like the, the plant cooling itself and getting a lot of water to, to cool itself, um, that whole process is basically powered by the heat and the, the dryness in the air. What I think I'm, I'm, what I'm also talking about too is reducing the osmotic stress of the plant by, you know, keep, if you keep your media more saturated in the heat, it won't, if it is loaded up with nutrient, then it won't have as much stress caused by, by that. And that's what I'm saying is if you, if you can lower it in high heat situations, but as long as you keep it balanced, you shouldn't have a problem. The American one's been trying to and jump in here for a little bit. He's got his hand up. So I was just going to yeah. pass it over to him. No big deal. I got a quick question in the comment. I got, um, so yeah, when it, you know, I've been told or people have said that um, if there's wind stress or light heat stress in a, in a indoor grow, there's certain nutrients that will get pushed through quicker, like calcium, I think was mentioned, like they'll use a lot of calcium and you'll start seeing deficiencies. I was wondering just in general, heat, will heat suck up certain nutrients? And I, you know, v, VPD is what I was going to bring up with, with heat. If, if your room's a hundred and you're like, I would suggest and your your humidity is really low i would i would bring it up a little bit um going by the vpd chart but the vpd chart probably doesn't go over 100 degrees because plants don't necessarily want to be in uh you know over 100 degrees so but i noticed that as the temperature goes up the humidity goes up to keep it in the vpd range so like 80 degrees should be like 70 something percent humidity to keep it happy something like that so yeah those are my uh questions and comments uh, Anybody think Does anyone know what might nutrients like... get sucked out, like because of heat? Is, is there a certain ones or no? I know that there are. What some... nutrients get sucked out? Is that the question? Yes, yes. Due to heat stress, more, more so. You know. So like which ones have... are used more, or which ones are absorbed more? Because I guess, no, like, I don't think that up, things are used up more. They're used the, up. Nothing's more. really used up more in that sense. Like the only thing that leaves the plant through transpiration is water. Um, so that's the whole point. The water you're going to be losing more just pure water out of the plant from transpiration. So whatever that water is carrying with it up into the plant is is going to be there and as a lot more water is going through it you know it doesn't need to carry as much with it along the way because it's going to be left in the plant i think some people also misinterpret a calcium deficiency when they start using an led because their plant begins to photosynthesize more efficiently under a better spectrum 
their plant is actually photosynthesizing at a higher rate. So if there's not enough calcium in the soil, you actually see it. Where before it was under a less intense light, the plant yes, wasn't being driven as hard. Yes, you can definitely expose things like that. Absolutely. By increasing the intensity of the light, you'll expose whatever was the, the lowest the lowest read. So I have a question um, for, for Dr. Fogel, because I kind of had a aha moment when something clipped in my mind when you were talking about VPD driving transpiration. Is there anything else? Or is VPD really the only thing that drives the transpiration rates in, in the plants? Because that makes VPD more important than even I thought. Because if you can control transpiration rates, you can fucking... I mean, you can play mad scientist. You can fucking... Just yeah, it's basically VPD. Um, heat itself... It, it, the plant will respond to independently of VPD um, in terms of transpiration and in terms of how it, it controls its stomata. So the plant will open and close its stomata to try to, um, you know, limit or maximize. But it, you can think of that as just sort of controlling the the floodgate and the irrigation can, canal, right? It doesn't require okay. any, any real energy other than that moment where you're changing it. Right. But in a controlled environment. I mean, hopefully we're controlling. Yeah, no, most of the time, the, the amount of water that's lost, assuming that there's enough water for the plant to have access to, um, the amount of water that's lost to transpiration is a, a function of the VPD and like the size nice. of the plant. So there you have it, guys. I mean, that's how important but VPD is. If you, I mean, if you think about it like this too, though, if you have more water being transpired, moving through the plant. Yeah. Anything that's in soil solution, for example, or in solution from a nutrient that you added is going to go through that. But in a synthetic standpoint. Well, if it exactly gets uptaken, yeah, so the uptake processes are, are different. Most of the water enters the plant through osmosis. So the water actually enters the plant as pure water, too. And anything else that's in the plant that's in the water or dissolved in solution enters through either active transport processes or through diffusion across the cellular or across the root membranes. Um, so the, the you can sort of leave some things behind in the soil. It's not just since it's in the soil or in the water, it automatically goes into the plant, but certainly more of it goes into the plant when more water is going into the plant. I've just, I think, yeah, like what most people are seeing is when the plant is transpiring at a higher rate and it's sitting in that VPD range, it just grows a lot healthier and a lot happier. And uh, people tend to want that. I've been very fortunate. A lot of the seasons just work. Um, my temperature naturally falls within like my tent between like 78 and 82. And my RH can be anywhere between like 55 and like 68, like 70. So it's not perfect, but it's pretty close and it uh, stays within that range pretty tight without much regulation. And when you keep it, like Spartan has mentioned in the past, even if it's not in the perfect range, something about like whether it's kids or plants, they like consistency. So if you can keep a good consistent environment, your plants will get used to it. The amount of wind, the amount of light, the amount of uh, humidity, nutrients, size of their pots, everything. And they'll eventually get I mean, if you give them way too small of a pot, they're not going to be successful. But if you set them up with a decent chance to succeed and put them in within those proper ranges, uh, you can have a ton of success. And it's just about dialing it in to get closer and closer to that VPD range. Um, yeah. I think it definitely shows that when you're hitting it, the plants just crank. And a lot of people notice, I think, in the summer. Um, this is where I question, like, is VPD almost like those uh, 
charts that show like, oh, nitrogen is taken up between this pH and that pH. Like, do we really know the perfect VPD for cannabis already? Like I said, already discovered? See, or I, is it across this is where I think we get into, I think we can make VPD into too much of a god here because VPD is not even, isn't even the only important thing to think about in terms of climate. Um, so it's important to remember that temperature matters independently of VPD. Um, and really, I mean, in an indoor grow, we can't be up where Aaron's talking about growing outdoors at 100 to 110 degrees. Um, that would be problematic in and of itself just for the, the temperature reasons. Um, so even if you could keep the VPD in the correct range there, it's, it's not gonna to work out well for the plant. Um, and at the opposite end is true. You know, you can't grow a plant in 30 degree weather just because you have, you know, uh, the right humidity to get the right vapor pressure deficit. Yeah. So I think we need to, I always think if you're thinking about climate, you want to start by thinking about temperature. And then probably the next thing is, is relative humidity because that creates vapor pressure deficit. Relative humidity also has to be kept kind of within a, a reasonable range. Um, if it's too humid, for sure, you can run into problems with mold and rot and stuff like that it's definitely one of the i think two of the most important things to manage that most new growers have to immediately kind of figure out like how hot or cold is it in their space and how much or how little humidity are they going to have to manage and most people end up having to remove a lot of the humidity whether it's fans or dehumidifiers but spartan uh, what are your thoughts well like i just wanted to jump on I didn't want to interrupt Dr. Coco when he was talking, but I wanted to explain a little bit further just because it was cool in my mind when I figured it out for myself. I always wondered why I could get away with so much outdoors and why I couldn't get away with it indoors. It pissed me off. It's like, why the hell can I just throw them outside and they just do fine in crazy weather, but I'm off just a little bit inside and I see issue. And it just clicked with me one time. It's the root ball, man. The root balls inside are exposed basically the same temperatures as the plant above because they're sitting in pots and they're exposed to it. But when you're outside and you're in the ground, you got a super cool ground with nice, uh, cool water down there that's keeping the plant, you know, when it brings that water up, that's getting flown through the plant. And when that pl plant transpires, it's just like us sweating. I'm sure there's that same effect, the cooling effect underneath those leaves. And uh, it just keeps Zero the thermal. So cooler. Yeah, yeah, so, so. There's that's also crazy. like the light. It's so different when you have like sunlight that's not going to be a hundred percent intensity from the start of the day to the finish of the day. Like with the grow oh, light, yeah, it's set yeah. at a certain point and it's just hammering it basically all day long. And your plant's like, all right, I need to photosynthesize right fucking now. Whereas like clouds and like a little bit of shade, depending on the angle, the sun, and all that stuff, the outdoor plant gets a one. I think a better spectrum. It's just so full. It gets like everything from UV to infrared, all well, that. Well, it's because of the, it's the whole like what like the the difference between me growing at work and me growing at home at work the lights are fucking way the fuck higher than my head but it's it's the whole idea of it's you're getting the same uniform intensity across every which way same thing outside that's why you get like a natural fucking giant fucking bush i mean you barely have i mean yeah. i top them yeah, i don't want a christmas tree but i mean you they bush out easy outside they just naturally do because they're getting hit with light from every angle you don't, you just can't exactly. get that. Intensity. And they're getting hit from air from every angle and air is moving around it in a way yeah. that it won't in a smaller tent. Um, Doc, I, I, I have think a, a good analogy for this is we could all probably be overworked for two hours a day, right? As long as like, then we have 10 hours a day where we're kind of like just taking it easy and another like, you know, 12 hours a day where we're sleeping. 
Um, we could all be overworked for two hours a day, but we can't all be overworked for 14 hours a day. Um, it you're, just doesn't you're getting into like DLI, basically. It, no, it, it's really not. I mean, the plants actually is suffering. It's not like it compensates um, in terms of uh, PPFD. It's not that the plant compensates and is able to process more during one period of time because it, it processes less during the other period of time. It's just able to get through those shorter windows where it's struggling. It's because okay, uh, so I've, the photosynthetic synthetic effect, I mean, you know, that's, that's it's more or less automatic, right? When the, the photon hits the chloroplast, we don't have to get into the physics of it all, but like, that's what, that's why. Yeah, yeah they have to try to avoid it if they can't process it, right? So the plants in, in, in midday sun or whatever, when the PPFD is really high from the sun, most plants are A, struggling, and B, making efforts to uh, compensate for that. And it's slowing down the growth during that period of time, actually. Not to backtrack, but what's your ideal VPD, uh, Doc? Oh, you know, it, it, it sort of depends. I mean, most of the time, we're not really that far off of one. So you, you sort I'm of... in the range of 7.5 to 8.5. <laughs> and you okay, can so you see my plants are going. Okay, so 0.85, yeah. Right. And you can see my plants are just going crazy. Right. So there's, there's so much at stake other than BPD. I just wanted to add that we got past it, but yeah. Yeah. Well, that's pretty close to one, two. Um, you know, you start seeing 7.6 is, is not very close to one. What's that? 7.6. No, no, no. 7.6 to 8.5. Oh, outdoors. Seven. Yeah, bro. Like 7.6 to 8.5. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot. Degree. You're in 110 degrees with yeah, like yeah, yeah. 15% yeah. humidity. Yeah, exactly. So it's not yeah. everything. Yeah. Jesus, I hadn't done the math on that. That's that's high. I knew yeah. it was crazy high. I've never even seen a number that high on the chart. Yeah, I didn't either. It's all the way at the bottom right. <laughs> yeah, as soon as he said seven, I'm like, everything I know is in the ones. <laughs> right. That's why I thought I'm like, oh, so you mean 0. 0.75. I thought he That's was like, oh, no, no, am I magnitude. <laughs> that's funny. Um, yeah, that's that's crazy, crazy high. Um, but vapor pressure deficit alone isn't isn't sort of what's driving photosynthesis. In fact, it's unrelated. What's really driving photosynthesis is PPFD. Um, so these are two sort of separate sides of that. Now I'm going to go ahead and assume that when it's 110 degrees, they're getting direct sunlight, probably close to 2000 PPFD. So that's the side that is making them struggle with the, the sort of photosynthesis. It's not the temperature. It's not the humidity. It's not the VPD. It's the, the density of photons that are striking that plant that it's got to do something with. And for some people who think that like the praying leaf is always a good thing, when they start going up to the point where it's like the hands are actually starting to touch or the leaves are curling up like that, that's your plant trying to defend itself from yeah. too much light. That, um, that, yeah, that very well could be a photoprotection response where it's trying to adjust the leaf angle so that it receives fewer photons seedlings will do that if you like they're really sensitive to light in my experience so if you give them even a little too much light you'll start to see those first two little leaves will start to like pinch up towards each other and in some cases the outer edges of the leaves start to taco and um it's definitely um something that i've seen a lot of newer growers have that happen and getting the optimal ppfd levels for a seedling is uh, can be tricky because often they just want to take it pretty easy but if you get the light hung the right distance they can uh, come out pretty stout because uh 
it just all depends on what light you're using, hanging distance, things like that. But getting back on the heat topic, I'm uh, curious. I'll pass it back to Doc. Oh, I was just drifting off and trying to catch up on the chat. Um, see if no worries. I was I just looking at it. I have a point, to make. Yeah, have a point to make. Yeah. So I actually was reading recently and I kind of shared related research in the chat, but uh, I was reading research about how maybe PAR, photosynthetically active radiation, maybe requires a little bit of a, a reassessment and particularly in the far red um, uh, spectrum. So I've talked a bit about this on, it's actually on my saved stories on my Instagram where I talk about what's called BPAR or uh, biologically plant active radiation. It's a different range instead of 400 to 700, which is PAR, um, which is like the blues to the reds. Uh, the far reds are like the 700 to 800 range is uh, far red that has an effect on the plant. Although it's not directly impacting uh, like photosynthesis by itself, when you combine it with like a 660 red, uh, deep red plus far red is called the Emerson effect and they're more effective together than either one by itself. Um, the 660 is extremely effective by itself at photosynthesis. The 730 is the most common one I see, but like 720, 701, 750, 799, all of those will work as long as it's between 700 and 800 it has that same Emerson effect if you combine it with a uh, red that's in like the 660 to 699 range. So those are just some little facts about the different spectrums and things like that and uh, the effects that they might have. But um, Matthew, I'm sorry, I kind of actually forgot the question. <laughs> and, no, uh, there was no it. question. Uh, no, but what you did was you made an important point establishing uh, that we kind of talked about this before. And even in the research, um, you know, I don't mean to make this sound like a, you know, a, more of a breaking news story than it is much to my detriment because I hate clickbait, but, you know, people have been talking about this kind of a thing for a long time, actually, uh, oh, several decades, at least. And, not just uh, using PAR was the, the point and the other end of the spectrum right. instead of far red was, was UVs. There's actually a decent amount of research with cannabis specifically and UV. There was a research study that looked at like plants grown in high altitude versus low altitude and the UV exposure and the THC percentage and hemp versus drug cultivars is how they labeled it. And there are people like uh, Migro um, who has a light uh, company. He's worked with Dr. MJ on uh, testing and things like that. But he's gone to places where they have plasma lighting that has UV in it. And they've seen like higher terpenes and higher cannabinoids in their hemp facilities. And I've also seen people using uh, UV bars, I think through like Grandmaster level and some of the guys over at HLG, um, Uncle Reefer has been using UV bars for a while and seeing some success with that. There's a lot of people experimenting with it. And I definitely think that um, we're not just gonna be looking at the 400 to 700 range uh, in the future of cultivation. They're gonna be considering all these spectrums outside of the 400 but to 700. they are, I, I just wanna reiterate why it's important to still distinguish them as two different sets of things that we would wanna look at. Um, because, and you made this point, Jack, so I'm just sort of reiterating it. Um, the 400 to 700 range is responsible for the vast majority of, of photosynthesis. Um, the, the photons that are outside that range may very well have other impacts on the plant. And some of those other impacts may be desirable for us, but it's important to think about them sort of separately. Um, most of those photons shouldn't be counted as part of um, PAR, as part of the PPFD limit, for example, that, that you could be exposing your plants to. Um, so it, it's, I agree that they're important kinds of light, but there are, they are still different in what they do for the plant. 
if you use them by themselves, they would not grow a plant basically at all. It'd grow terribly. Right, so right, like right. there's um, a par far sensor, which has been developed by Apogee, who's worked with like NASA, but they're the ones yep. who develop, I believe, the best sensor. I think it's what one of the ones that Dr. MJ uses and many others use yep. to test grow lights uh, to see the actual par levels. But they added a par far because one other thing that I wanted to mention with the far red is it needs to be in a proper ratio. Like my far red is only like seven watts out of a 250 watt light. If I had more of it, it would make the plants stretch a ridiculous amount and undi undesirable amount. So it needs to be the right ratio, like a sweet spot where there's more um, deep red than far red. So you want more of the 660. You know, I've talked to some grow light companies about this. And um, it, it's funny, there's, by the way, a tremendous range in how much the people that work at grow light companies know about grow lights. Um, it, it's been- I'm not surprised. It's been somewhat disheartening to, to realize how little some of them know about the products that they are making and, and marketing. Um, but some of the best ones that I talked to, and I talked to some designers and some engineers, um, talk about, yeah, using fire red primarily for seedling lights. Um, and they're putting more far red in their smaller lights because they think that those lights are the lights people are using for seedlings and they're putting a lot less of the far red in lights that are being used for flowering, um, specifically for the, the point, the stem elongation and other things that are really beneficial for that early growth. There's more evidence, I think, that UV may be more helpful during flowering period. Um, and to the extent that it is helpful, it would be for the sort of the cannabinoids and other things like that. Um, but again, it, it's sort of outside the range of photosynthesis. So I almost recommend people think about it as like an entirely different type of a thing. Like you have your grow light, which is for PAR, which is to power photosynthesis. And then you could have some other lights to do some other things. If you want far red for stem elongation early on during life, if you think that UV is gonna help create better cannabinoid profile later in life, I would think of those as like accessory pieces of equipment, almost like you think of like your fan or your air conditioner as like not part of the light. Um, and when you're thinking about buying lights, yeah, I, I, I almost sort of wish that they, the lights would focus specifically on PAR for the reason Jack said, when they include, uh, you know, 730 chips, I tested a light recently that had one. The, the diode count on the, the 730 chips was one. So it's just not enough. It's there for basically to say that we've got it. And if you really think that that's an important thing, then you'd want to, to be able to control the quantity. Uh, yeah, similarly. No, go ahead. Similar, there was um, um, an article uh, that I was reading about that I also linked in the chat that was about uh, green light. And uh, sort of similar to what uh, you're saying, Dr. MJ, you know, they kind of made the point that it's like, it's not going to make or break anything, but um, it was just kind of a neat thing to see how, I guess, the green light through some sort of property of its physics that I'm not entirely sure that I remember uh, enough to talk about here, it was able to be, I guess, more penetrative in, in the plant canopy. And another research showing that like in some plants, this might stimulate growth or have some sort of a, or has been shown to show a difference in growth. Um, this sounds really very much like marketing. And the only way you can get a difference in, in penetration, different wavelengths of light will penetrate different things in, in different ways. But and what you're talking about there, it would be shifting the, the spectra 
to the spectral ranges that, that penetrate leaf matter better, which isn't necessarily even what you want. You want the I don't leaf. think they were saying it was par though. Here's really what it come down to. So they were talking basically in a lot of the science that has shifted in the current grow light market that we've all seen. It used to be blurple because people thought blue was the most and, and red were the most photosynthetically active points on the par um, map in the McCree curve. You look at them, there's giant spikes in red, giant spikes in blue. So they're like, let's mm -hmm. put all red and let's put all blue diodes and that'll be the most photosynthetically active for plants. It'll grow the best plants, blah, blah, blah. That's not it. the only reason, Jack. But the there, red and there blue were... diodes were also more efficient for, for making light. So they the oh, manufacturers really promoted that idea about only using red and blue light because it was easier and cheaper for them to make lights that were red and blue. So oh. there's... There's a little circle um, here that, yeah, there's some truth to that, but the manufacturers really leaned on that because it was so much more efficient to make that color light. Well, I just what, want to give the, the whole context of what I was saying before. And that's just to say that I, it might very well be marketing. It's, it's possible. Um, and I think that's a really important thing to sort of um, allow a space for consideration in all research. Um, I, had, I think it's not marketing at all. It's physics. I mean, the light spectrum is a spectrum from 400 to 700 that we can see the visible light spectrum of PAR. And they have done studies with plant cell tissue where they shine individual spectrums of light at plants and they can see how much of the tissue of the plant it can go through. And green is more penetrative. Yeah, no, that's what I was saying. Absolutely. There's yeah, difference was, in the different spectra. With that yeah, being said, I, I guess there's green I, within the white light spectrum that most modern LEDs have, which a lot of people don't recognize or acknowledge because when you look at that like little um spectrum curve maybe they'll color it in with all of the color that exists there but you don't see green when you look at a light you see white there's green in there and it penetrates the plant more i think most people that have grown with white led lights versus purple lights will tell you it just grows a better plant it whether it's because it's penetrating better yeah or it's but better jack spectrum, you gotta really think most of the time that, that grow light helpful. companies talk about penetration they're talking about it as a power statistic not as a wavelength statistic and they're yeah, trying to make it a, appear like their lights are more powerful to get better penetration yeah um, this wasn't this wasn't anything to do with that they were just making a nice little uh, yeah. sort of physiological observation and it was interesting and, and one thing they noted what they what they showed was that uh, the stimulation and growth, quote unquote, was in one kind of plant, but not in others. So probably if there even is a slight benefit, um, it's probably very, um, uh, uh, what's the word for intermittent, you know, across group, circumstances. The group to look at for this, if anybody's curious, is in Michigan. It's called CELL, which stands for the Controlled Environment Light Lab. And they have every single spectrum of LED in a bunch of different bays. It's not cannabis specifically, but they're growing a bunch of different plants and trying to see what the optimum spectrum is, yeah. how it changes morphology. There's a lot to it. It's really interesting, but it is kind of bleeding edge. And I think they're one of the very few groups that fully grasps and understands it. I will say this from the cannabis perspective, going back to the far red thing, Leo Stone from Aficionado uses far red on his male plants because a lot of males have tight clusters and it's hard to get the pollen to release. So it helps them stretch a little bit more. So there's more internode spacing and it allows the pollen clusters to open up. I wanted to, um, I forgot to say shout out to Brandon Rust. He let us know that he had to leave in 15 minutes and then I let that 15 minutes go by and uh, completely forgot to let him give his final thought and shout out. So shout out to Brandon Rust. He's at Bokashi Earthworks, uh, BokashiEarthworks.com for a bunch of awesome products, as well as uh, Russ Brandon on Instagram and Black Label Organics on Instagram as well for his uh, greenhouse farm. 
they're doing uh, great stuff there as well as majestic craft cannabis so shout out to brandon always appreciate him i know kyle uh said that he's gonna have to get i know aaron actually said he's gonna have to get going here in just a few minutes at 5 15 on the west coast so aaron if you had any final uh, thoughts about the growing in the heat or just uh, general topics that we've touched on tonight uh if you could jump in now and then um i don't i don't want to kick you out but i know you got a few minutes left so if you want to give your final shout out you can do it now that actually works perfect because she's uh she's gonna be here in like two minutes. So I got to help her unload stuff, but, um, thanks for having me. And, um, I appreciate that you guys just kind of let me, you know, come and go as I please. It kind of just show up when I have the time. And, um, so I, I, like I said, I always love coming. Um, you guys have the most stimulating conversation in my entire life. So it's always wonderful. Um, Check me out at atgacres.com. Get yourself a plant packer. Best way to ship some clones. Um, I also am running a 5% discount right now. Just lifetime discount. If, you, if you're if you watching this right now and you DM me and you want to get plant packers, I'm going to shoot you a 5% off discount. It's just good forever. Um, also, ATG Acres on YouTube and ATG Acres on Instagram. Yeah. Thanks for having me, guys. See ya. Thanks for coming, man. Have a great one. Say hi to your uh, lovely wife. Yeah. You stimulate me too, dude. Well done. <laughs> Peace out at ATG. That's how his beard grows so fast. It's all that stimulation. <laughs> Later, guys. Have a good one, Aaron. That's Aaron the Grower. Uh, awesome guy. Thank him very much for coming. Each week, always a pleasure when he's able to stop in. Uh, we were talking a little bit. I was going to ask a question. Can, yeah, there's a thing in chat. Um, Chris Webb is bringing this up, and it's kind of beyond me a little bit because I don't know the specific bacteria, but. He said that he went to a trade show. We, there was a Canicon in Detroit. Uh, I, went, I, would, I went out there on Friday. It was pretty cool. But Chris Webb's wondering, he talked to, um, I think it's Extreme Gardening that has the Azos and Mycos. But the Azos specifically that they're passing out, they said it's a uh, bacteria that pulls and converts atmospheric nitrogen into, you know, into the soil. Um, I knew I mentioned it was something nitrogen related last week or like a few weeks ago. We were talking about this exact product, uh, but, the American uh, one and I. Yeah. So if that's the case, I mean, does that, what do we know about this? Is it, uh, does that uh, persist for a long period of time I, or is it something that has to that's be true, but a lot? What someone, like told me, what someone told me is that it, it does, uh, you know, get the nitrogen out of the atmosphere, but it doesn't get, make a, it doesn't create a lot of it available to the plant. So you can't just say, oh, I'm going to throw down Ezos and take the 80% of nitrogen that's in the air and feed my plant. It needs other sources is what I was told. So well, that's like, about There's a lot of, there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of what are called diazotrophs that do this, um, this process. And a lot of times the symbiosis, those mutualistic relationships are kind of uh, sort of specific. So I would, I'd be curious. I mean, I guess I'm I could just to remember, take a this look. Isn't, the, isn't it normally handled by two separate microbes? One that, um, God, I think it fixes um, atmospheric nitrogen into like something else. And then another nodules. I think there's, I think it's normally a two-step process. Is this that, is that why this is special? Because it's one microbe that does it in one, in like one step? Yeah, maybe so. Uh, he said to Google, they said to Google serum yeah. based corn. So let I me, have one let of me those just Google do that. <laughs> thought I had that sample. I don't know what I did with it. I would just pick it up and read the whole damn thing, but I don't. 
I will say I use their Mycos product, and I know it might not be oh, the I highest granules of mycorrhizal fungi, but it has worked extremely well for me every time. I think it's affordable. Sick. Even if you get the tiny little sleeve, if you're a home grower, you can get these, the little ones on Amazon for like a couple bucks. And it like you see tiny spoonfuls of it when you transplant, and you're I've done like 10 side-by-side -side experiments and every single time it's just a better plant. It's got better root ball at the end. It's like a healthier plant, more vigorous plant. I can't speak highly we enough. We use that at Mincanico, dude. And if we're using commercial, you know it's fucking worth it. You know what I mean? And you're 100%. I'm glad you said it only takes a little bit because that's the number one thing I see with that is people go nuts with it. I'm like, you just use like 30 times the amount you needed to. You, no wonder you think that shit's expensive. Yo, Spartan, has your um, commercial grow tried the Dynamico uh, product at all? No. Nope. We just use Mycos now. We got recharge too. We got this huge, it's a five gallon bucket of recharge. It's ridiculous. It's funny to see that much in one spot when you're like a home grower and used to seeing like tiny oh, little dude. tubs of it. Uh, Kyle has to get going soon. So Kyle, I'm curious, before you go, do you use any micro products, whether it's Recharge or Mycos or Azos or any of these types of uh, things? And uh, do you have any final thoughts and uh, shout outs before you get going? Yeah, yeah, I'm about that, uh, that Recharge life. Uh, I didn't really know how good it was. And then I started using it and I, I definitely see like a radical improvement uh, basically the very next day. So uh, uh, I stand by that product. It's pretty good. Um, in regards to like maybe some of the heat issues, um, I definitely, some of the mistakes that I made in, in the very beginning was buying an AC that, or, you know, like a portable air conditioner that didn't have uh, two exhausts for, you know, the air coming in and the air ex escaping. Like a lot of them just kind of allows you to pull air in um, or not. A lot of them have the exhaust, but uh, it's good to have one that takes it. For, uh, it's good to have a place that you, what you're looking for is a closed loop system, which helps out radically. So you're not blowing in, uh, you know, IPM type issues from the outside going inside. I mean, they do make like an inline filter that you could put between that, um, that I've done before if someone's not in that scenario. But, uh, but yeah, and, uh, like I have a combo that's a, it's a basically an air conditioner slash dehumidifier. And I just basically put a, like a 20 gallon, um, it's like a tote on wheels. And I just, then I just basically take uh, tubes and put them in the back of the AC. So that gives me like a good four or five days of it just dripping on and so on. And then I just kind of roll that thing to my tub or uh, wherever just to dump that out. So that kind of, that's kind of how I set myself up. But uh, yeah, other than that, uh, you know, it was really good listening to you guys. You guys are definitely know, uh, you know, some of the stuff you guys are talking about. I mean, I don't have much uh, extreme knowledge in uh, lights per se. That's uh, not my forte, but uh, it's good listening. And uh, I'm with you, yeah. bro. Still don't know shit about lights. <laughs> I know. I mean, I want. I'd like to learn it. It's, it's simply a whole other realm of, of of things to learn in this uh, in this industry. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, sorry. I got. I, I was on vacation in New York this weekend, so I got. I got to get going. I got some stuff to unpack. But uh, I'm really glad I was able to listen in, and I appreciate all of you. I appreciate us all still doing this, and hope you guys have a good uh, good night. I'll see you next weekend. Have a great one. That's Kyle at Predicative Breeding on all social media platforms, pbreeding.com for feminized seeds to get some awesome stuff. And he's got some auto flowers coming soon, working with a full duplex. So Mandalorian genetics, uh, expecting to see some really cool stuff out of that. I'm good one, Kyle. Hey, could I share my screen really quickly? Because I have a light question for Dr. MJ Coco. Yep, let me uh, host you. Well, he's bringing it up. I have that Azos package in front of me, and it says Azos converts atmospheric nitrogen into a usable form of nitrogen that is readily available to the plant. So it says it right on the package. Yeah.
but I think it's good for like clones where you're not trying to feed or anything and it just gives a little bit of nitrogen so they stay stay green a lot of people like it in that circumstance but uh well, with me with a soil system where i have them reusing the soil that's fucking amazing so i'm gonna probably continue i'm gonna start buying that product after that after i use it probably I feel like our soils are so rich in nitrogen with like the compost and like a lot of the other inputs. Like I've never had nitrogen issues personally. I can back down on all that and I can save it and start using that shit outside of my vegetables and stuff. It works in symbiosis with the mycos too, uh, Spartan, to help it get in the root. Mendo Dope loves it and they fucking grow killer shit. Sorry, Matthew, you've got some uh, cool stuff up here. Let's, uh, Let's talk it through. That's a good question. No, I would love to talk more about that topic as well though. Uh, but, um, so this was a slide from the presentation on the Future Canvas project, but the reason I brought it up is because I thought, because I needed an example, I want to talk about how, you know, various groups, including myself, make claims and, and us on the panel about like various things about cultivation. But even for myself, sometimes, you know, what I know, even the research I base things on might be correct, but maybe not totally correct. And so new research comes out. So it's always helpful to like cite where you get your information, I guess. Um, including your experiential stuff, which is also valuable. Uh, so I came across this claim here um, that, uh, and I'm not, not really sure I understand even the context, but this is from a person, this is supposedly a quote from Don Huber, um, but I wasn't able to find anything about it, which is part of the problem, right? Uh, this not, it's not really a good citation, it's just an asterisk for the name. Uh, but this is a, they say the volume of photosynth- photosynthesis increases anywhere from 150 to 600%. I don't really know what is meant by volume of photosynthesis personally. Um, but like, if they mean something like efficiency, like my understanding is that the, the theoretical maximum efficiency for like C3 and C4 plants, we've talked about this before, is very low. It's in the single digits. And uh, here we have an example because we were talking about PAR and photons and how some of them are reflected and some of them don't penetrate as much as others because of their energy level and all of that. And I thought this diagram um, from what is the maximum efficiency with which photosynthesis can convert solar energy into biomass uh, published in 2008 makes. We have like a thousand kilojoules um, or 10,000 or 10, yeah, a thousand, sorry, 1000. Uh, uh, I don't know uh, for cannabis. Is that a C3 or is it a C4? C3. 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 Okay. Um, so like, you know, just for, just as like an example here, we can see that like, you know, a lot of this stuff falls out of that photosynthetically active spectrum, like basically half of it, you know, or, or rather, um, a, a 20th, um, you know, a lot of it's reflected, a lot of it's uh, just based just based on simple photochemical inefficiency, just of how the photosynthesis works. A lot of it is not used or lost, rather. And you know, you can see that even the difference between C three and C four isn't really a big issue. Um, but I guess, like, my question to you, we would Dr. read this Jay, essentially as nineteen out of a thousand versus twenty five out of a thousand. Am I am I following that, or am I looking at that backwards? Would be that's the sorry. Say that one more time. Oh, is that, that's just the percentage that goes to that. Okay. Yeah. So you're dealing with 46 kilojoules ends up in biomass in the C3, 60 kilojoules ends up as biomass in a C4. Yes. Yep. Out of the thousand that you started with. Yes. But you're only starting with 513 kilojoules in the PAR spectrum. Exactly. Or, or yeah, no, you're sorry. You're starting or with that's 487. I'm reading this backwards. Yeah. yeah you're no, starting you're right. with 487 kilojoules in the PAR spectrum. 
-hmm. So about half of those losses are right off the top. And then a lot of the light is just not able to be used by plants. So I would have started there if I was thinking about the efficiency in an indoor grow, because we'd start with the PPFD, which would be showing that. See this at the top is 1000 in the next step. Right, right, right. So we would start with the 487 number. Oh, I so I want to answer one thing to Matthew's uh, point where he said the volume of photosynthesis increases anywhere. And I'm speculating, Doc, you might be able to confirm this for me. I think that they may measure photosynthesis based on the amount of sugars created. Yeah, that's the only way I was thinking to interpret so that. The volume of the volume of photosynthate, though. I yeah, that makes more sense, right? Photosynthate. Yeah, yeah so the volume sense. of photosynthate increases. But photosynthesis itself, refer so if I interpret this correctly, this is a slide that is intending to show this quote from DM Huber, this is the kind of BS that you're likely to encounter. And this is why that quote can't be true. Is that or at least why you should like try to find that information or like right, consider right, the right, source. Right, right. But if essentially the, the point of this slide is that that quote is BS. It might be BS, I think it's the more insidious point. <laughs> That's what I think this slide, whoever made this slide is showing you an example of a quote that you would want to evaluate the claim based on empirical information like peer reviewed research. And they're saying this is a, an example of a claim that he said it could get you know, 150 to 600% more. And this is why <laughs> when you look at this other chart, you're like, this is just probably they could have been typing this in and they just instead of typing you know they typed in photosynthate and they spelled it wrong and then spell checker corrected it to photosynthesis and they just no the claim is specious i mean <laughs> the, the claim curious, can you can you increase to 600 percent uh photosynthate can you uh, only can, if you're like starting at one sixth of your potential i suppose right yeah so the way that this could happen you can increase efficiency by 600 percent if you're extraordinarily inefficient to begin with, but if you're humming along at a pretty good efficiency to start with, then there's no way you can do that. So the way that that claim could be true would be like if you were actually only receiving like 10 kilojoules got translated into biomass, then you would be able to increase that 400% potentially up to 46. But that's by giving more light, for example. No, that would be by resolving oh. other inefficiencies in the system. Oh, like all right. So case, I've been with like, carbohydrate. Busy, like with a plant though. Like, like, yeah. So the chart on the right, we should interpret this as if everything's perfect, you could start with 487 kilojoules in the PPA in the PAR spectrum, and you'd end up with 46, a little less than 10% of that energy converted into plant biomass. Do you think it would be possible to, yeah, like, so... So but, but any given increases. gardener might be operating at a significantly lower percentage than that. That's a good point, though. So a, a given gardener may only be getting, you know, five kilojoules of that energy translated into biomass. And maybe that's because they're not adding nitrogen. And we could say if you added nitrogen, your photosynthesis would increase by 600 percent. And that could be true. Oh, so fucked up. <laughs> yeah. That's well, in this case, it seems like the carbohydrate profile must have been really fucked up because it says, and the carbohydrate profile changes to be composed of high proportion of complex I'm carbohydrates. I'm still looking at this slide. So maybe they had some very, very messed up conditions and they somehow corrected it to get that 150 to 600%. But hold on, hold on. The, 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 this slide is asking us to evaluate claims about products and services. And the claim about the product and service is the quote by DM Huber. And we're supposed to use the information on this slide to evaluate that claim. I don't think we're just supposed to 
absorb this information as fact. As somebody that puts together lecture slides like this, that's what I think is going on in this one. I mean, it's out of context. I don't know what the slide that preceded this was. That's a good point. Um, and personally, I, I, uh, I feel like but this seems to be a case in point, like an example, like, for example, somebody said this, let's try to evaluate this claim. That, that I makes sense. No, I am. No, no, Dr. MJ, before you go much further, I did mention that I am the one who made this slide. Oh, you are. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, is that what you're doing? You sorry. What, so what is this? Why are you I'm sorry. sorry. I thought There's you nothing to be sorry about. There's not a thing to be sorry about. Actually, I do appreciate you kind of looking at it more objectively that way. Uh, I was so Is this, a, is this that a quote that you're trying to evaluate? Well, I was trying to just bring the point that, um, uh, so that's why what I answered it the way that I did. That, like sort of insidiously, you know, this, this actually could be true. It could be false, it could be true. But there's no way to really evaluate a statement without kind of giving more than like a name, kind of like how we What's do just product? basic simple. Well, I think the claim itself is, is untrue because he's saying it as a, a basic fact. If you give this product, it will increase anywhere from 150 to 600%. And you would have to know what you're starting point. with. Yeah. I guess that's true, huh? So it kind of sort of fails to be very useful uh, on that point. Uh, sort it strikes of me as a marketing claim that is, yeah, unverifiable. I wouldn't. I, I mean, I read claims like this and just be like, whatever. I mean, unless you're going to follow this up with a whole bunch of data to back that up, that just reads to me like a marketing claim. And the volume of photosynthesis, I got to say, I don't think that that's correctly worded. Yeah, volume. Yeah, I, yeah it's, it's kind of, and it's also, I, like I was saying, the, the main reason I brought it up actually was because I was curious, because I thought that maybe they meant, I didn't even think of uh, photosynthate. That's a really great interpretation. Um, but I was thinking like efficiency because I've heard other people talk about photosynthesis reactions, like, like trying to increase like the sort of natural efficiency of plant photosynthesis. And, right. Like without like um, really fundamentally changing the machine, the genetic machinery, the you know, proteomic machinery of the plant. Um, it's hard for me to believe that there are very um, maybe unsophisticated ways to achieve that goal. CO2 would be that product though, because if you look at just PAR and like uh, the Chandra et al. studies that he looked at, like where cannabis, Doc has referenced it a few times in the past, basically at a thousand PPFD is where plants begin to see stress at the atmospheric levels of about 400 ppm of CO2. But simply doubling the CO2 to 800 allows the plant to go from a thousand as it's basically high end to 1500 being sort of like a optimal growth. Like it'll, it'll, do great at 1500 and it'll even do well at 2000 with diminishing returns. So yeah. um, that's a product that can have kind of a crazy claim of, Oh, uh, if assuming just... that you're keeping up with everything else. Now the, the flip side of that is the efficiency really. And I think you brought this up last time and it caught me a little off guard and made me rethink about some of this, but you you were right when you said the efficiency actually does decrease in that situation. So um, you're moving further and further along the, the, the curve there and sort of getting smaller and smaller returns when you increase the, the PPFD. Um, so as a function of percentage of photosynthate generated per sort of photon, um, you'd be much more efficient at about 400 PPFD 
than you are at 1500 ppfd. Um, you're making more photosynthate at 1500, but you're making it less efficiently per photon. Kind of like how when, uh, you know, a lot of car engines are most efficient, like I was saying earlier, like 55 yeah. miles per hour, 60 or something like that. Maybe it's right. more So now if you're humming along at, at 40, you could actually increase your efficiency by driving faster. But if you're already going 100 miles an hour, you're not going to increase your efficiency by going 120. You might increase your speed, right? I mean, you will increase your speed. Um, and so if the, if the analogy there is the size of your harvest, yeah, you, you can increase the size of your harvest. But if you divided that harvest by the amount of power you put into that grow, it's gonna be less efficient. Then and you can't you really run like, at a lower density of light. And, and to extend the metaphor further, you can't really like add more fuel, right? Like what would that even be in this kind? Like more nutrient perhaps, but like at no, a certain fuel point there the, are limits. We're no, more like a trucking. Light. Yeah, yeah. Where we want to have more trucks on the road moving more products. So instead of running one grow tent at 1500 PPFD and just maxing it out with perfect CO2 and everything, you'd be better off to run like three or four grow tents all at like 500 to 1000 PPFD yes. and just spread that uh, perfect amount of par, keep the plants less stressed, healthy, this happy, is, this and is yielding. true. Yes, with all agriculture, there is an intensive style of agriculture where you try to maximize returns to a given plot of land. And there's extensive styles of agriculture where you just use a whole lot of land. Um, extensive agriculture always has a higher return to almost everything other than land. It, you get more per um, unit of energy invested, you get more per unit of labor invested, everything else. It's you have to increase your investment in labor, in light, in nutrients and all of that when you want to increase intensity and not increase the size. It reminds me a lot of like, uh, you know, it was crazy to me to consider, but of course it must be true. Uh, like there are places like YouTube and Amazon, other places that have like tons of data, you know, store that warehouse is full of hard drives humming along, changing out server data and all this stuff. Um, you know, but you're dealing with such you know, catastrophically large amounts of money, um, to use that adjective here, I think is appropriate, um, that like, it even makes sense to switch out all of those hard drives, just from a simple space perspective, to switch out hard drives that are like, however big that they are, and like, and slot them with like, significantly smaller solid state drives, just because they're more efficient. And, you know, a little bit, maybe there's a little bit of an uh, uh, increase or decrease in energy that's helpful too but like they're really trying to make those things more efficient and I think it's the same thing with the crops here like you can only make the single individual unit so efficient at a certain point you have to like you either increase this scale or increase that scale to kind of achieve yep the result well, into the, the car analogy when you're going fast like um, although your yield could increase slightly from like that 120 to 100 miles an hour the risk is only going to get higher and higher the faster you're pushing it so like with yeah. growing a plant you it's almost like growing in dwc where you've got that almost instant reaction if something goes wrong it can go really wrong really quick well the higher you're pushing your ppfd if one thing is off yeah. you're going to notice it and the plant is going to suffer and you have to have everything dialed in perfectly or else the plant will suffer and have dramatic issues so yeah it's, you got to have your game tiled in much more because 
Yeah, if you think of the the law of the minimum, that little barrel, now it's like the, the water's lapping at the top of all of the reeds, not just sort of one of them. And so you have to simultaneously sort of make sure everything is is good. It definitely makes things a lot more difficult. Some people are up to that challenge, trying to get the maximum return per square foot. Like um, home growers can put that much attention and time and love into the plant. Spartan Ground, what are you showing off over there? I bet you that's from a home grower. You're muted. Sorry. Oh, just my filters. I was like, man, that tasted like shit, that last one. I can see why. Oh, yeah, that's the uh, mouthpiece filters. That yeah, basically... there's a new one, and this is the one that was in there. Same Better than in your lungs. Yep, for sure, man. I realized uh, vaporizing versus smoking wow. makes a big difference on those. I see yeah, uh, Twitter um, Bob 13 mentioned earlier, um, asked about mealybug treatment and uh, smot poker actually asked about botrytis too. Um, so I just want to touch on those quickly if we have time. That's absolutely. Okay. So uh, with mealybugs in particular, um, I have some videos of mealybugs that I have found on cannabis and specific kinds. So like um, the, I think the vine mealybug was one of them or the grape mealybug. I think they're the same thing. And also I, I find a centrist mealybug and long-tailed mealybug, which are kind of a distinction that doesn't matter for most cases. The things that you're going to use against them are basically the same, but it might be helpful to know um, in case you're trying to make sure, you know, you don't have like plants that can host those insects on your area and they have slightly different ranges. But um, as for treatment, I like to use things like uh, and I've mentioned before, like Bouveria bassiani, Zeria fumosaurusia, those like fungal uh, mycoinsecticides, because um, because those scale insects, mealybugs, soft scale, armored scale, brown scale, black scale, um, all of those things, they they create kind of dense colonies, but they don't move at all, basically, unless they're in their crawler stage. So Bouveria is great for that because um, as long as you get enough spores on contact then they're gonna penetrate through the, um, the waxes and they're gonna penetrate through the epidermis and all that, colonize the insect that's not gonna even move around in the first place and you know get rid of all of it. Uh, you usually have to apply multiple times though, in my experience, this is true for most insects. So that's for mealybugs, um, that's Bavaria my favorite in general, control. The reapplying yeah. is, 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 that is the case always for Bavaria, but um, for Definitely. mealybugs, what was the other one that you wanted to jump into? Botrytis. And I, I wanted to say um, that uh, I do have a pest primer video for mealybugs as well as for uh, botrytis. I think the main thing that I wanted to mention, which I also said in chat, which is that uh, botrytis can be on so many different kinds of plants. Um, so many of them. And, and like I said before, a lot of times the, um, uh, the colonization can be asymptomatic in those plants. And they and might even only start to show at least visually, right? Are we uh, talking botrytis scenera, or is there multiple strains of it that can infect cannabis and other? Plants? Well, that's a good. It's a good question. I don't think that there's an answer to it yet that somebody could say definitively. But if we look at other plants um, and sort of like extrapolating from that, which is not always a perfect thing to do, which is one reason why I like to state my claims because, like, you know, just know that I'm I'm basing it off of things that we've demonstrated in. Um, in, in empirical work, but um, uh, there's there are cryptic species of botrytis that infect plants as well, um, and the distinction of that again visually might not be possible, 
uh, but genetically may be very, very possible. It might be that some of these cryptic species are maybe more or less virulent, might be more important for us to take a look at some over others. There's pseudocinaria, there's um, a couple of others that I mentioned in my pest primer, but uh, botrytis can be pretty much everywhere. And a lot of people are already aware of that. When it comes to like dealing with it though, actually treating it, um, it's one of those pests where I often have to ask people, I, I just tell them straight up, there's really not much you can do to remediate it that I think is very, very useful. Um, I, I often feel like you have to just cut out the, the infected material as quickly as possible. Now, sometimes botrytis, a lot of times botrytis is associated with the flower material, but even in other plants, it is also associated with like foliar material with actually leaf lesions in some cases. Or, or on a stem, even in some cases. Fruit is the one I, yeah, I was going to Fruit, mention. of course. Yeah, floral and reproductive tissues are the main one. So I wanted to mention a study that I saw in strawberries that made me kind of curious. I had one bud that I had been saving. I've mentioned often I keep like each of the best bud from each harvest for 420. I broke one out and it was like the fattest bud of this one harvest and I cracked into it and I could smell it. Uh, Portrait Sonera, in my opinion, has a sweet kind of a smell to it. And I looked in, sure enough, there was sort of that fuzzy nastiness in there and I microscoped it and it looked to be Bortritis. So I didn't smoke it, but then I was looking into like treatments and like if I was a licensed producer in California or Michigan, what somebody might do is run a UVC light over it for, I think it's like only, I want to say like 30 second intervals for a few minutes maybe. And then you let it sit in like a dark period for a few hours. And then all of the portritis that they test on at least strawberries was killed or like inactive but i wouldn't feel comfortable because you can still see it <laughs> like the mold is there but it's not uh it's, it's dead well i wonder about the mycotoxins so yeah for that, me, that worries me too yeah like when people ask me like you know so like whether it's powdery mildew or botrytis i i've gotten really excited about uh you know ultraviolet irradiation not for like products in general i guess that's true but like also like as like a cultivation tool specifically as, a, as an ipm tool in the toolbox and I think that it's a really cool idea, but the thing is that it's not like it denatures the mycotoxins that are inevitably produced. Like that's how molds, you know, defend themselves. It's because when other things eat the food that they eat, they want to make sure that doesn't happen. And one of the great ways they've done to communicate this is by poisoning other things like animals that eat it. Now, some things have adapted to certain molds and even eat them themselves, but like botrytis and powdery mildew, it's not like it's, I mean, this is definitely not a defensive, like, you know, consuming uh, uh, colonized material. Um, I mean, it's not going to be like an acute problem, but it might very well be a chronic issue uh, that a lot of people might even suffer at the moment. Aspergillus is another one that is commonly found in flower material. Um, and I'm not confident that ultraviolet radiation um, is really going to be effective for that. So you still have tainted material, at least at the flower stage. And that can be fatal in some cases, especially for like compromised people. Um, so you get, they have to be careful in those circumstances. Uh, certain people can get either, even just like really sick. My wife is sensitive to, she, we got some bud from cookies gifted to us, Georgia pie, and it had powdery mildew on there. And I didn't realize until after we broke it up, I looked in the bag and there was speckles of powdery mildew on basically all of the other buds. And so we just threw it out, but uh, she got really sick and like violently like vomiting for like hours had a headache for a day plus and just felt like shit for a day after and 
uh, there are definitely toxins associated with mold. So it's important, in my opinion, to scope like all your samples, even if they go through mold testing, they do big batch testing. And sometimes oh, this part of the batch will be clean or maybe get shipped off to the store and gets too hot in the bag and shipment and things like that. It can happen later on. So it's always a good idea to uh, give a good check and a good whiff of the product before you go in, break it down and smoke it up. Definitely support that. Another pro tip um, we done is that we don't ship out huge packs. You know, we're not sending out 20 pounds in one pack. We refuse. <laughs> you know what I mean? This is because of that reason. So that's, that's a nice tip for when you, if you are going to go big scale, it's just keep your packs kind of fairly small. Don't be sending out 20 pound packs because what's going to happen is that bag, that giant bag you just, I mean, if you can sell 20 pounds, but sell it in like one pound packs or two pound packs, because what's going to happen is those packs are going to sit open and some employee is going to sit there and dig out of them to fill jars or fill packaging. And it's just going to be open to whatever conditions that is. And then they're going to close it. And then whenever they sell out of all their stuff, then they're going to get back to it and open it up again and, and repeat the process. And yeah, not good. <laughs> if you, if you can keep them in smaller packs, though, at least the other packs will stay sealed in that container and uh, kind of a little bit more protected. Yeah, when people describe the IMO from the KNF practices, it made me realize that, yeah, you could do an IMO in your basement and collect the microorganisms that are floating around in the air in your basement. So this, there's microorganisms floating in all the air that everywhere, you know? So yeah, that's three points for it. Getting back to the Bortritis point is there's like Bortritis-sized wines where they put it in certain wines for flavor and people find it desirable. Well, they, so, they have the, the grapes get colonized. Yeah, they, they filter it and they take out the toxins and things like that, but it has like a certain sweetness to it from at least what I can pick up on the smell. I've never actually tried one of the wines, but it is interesting that it's used in like a culinary, almost like blue cheeses and lots of other cheeses are related to uh, certain molds. No, I actually think that's really great. It's kind of like... Um... Is it, oh gosh, I'm forgetting the name. What's the corn smut? What's the, the Mexican Spanish name for that corn smut? I forget what it's called, but uh, uh, they eat it and uh, it's, quite, it's quite nice. And um, I'm a big fan of like, I think it's very cool to like, I mean, as an American, uh, a lot of people come from cheese cultures, cheese eating cultures, and I'm a big blue cheese fan myself. Um, but even even so, I try to like consider that um, there, there are pluses and minuses of what I eat. And that includes like things like cheese as well. Um, and I know some people like, I guess this is kind of related, uh, but as long as we're talking like, you know, uh, health and immune system response and that kind of a thing. Um, we like some people, as you eat more and more cheese, you get more sensitive to it or dairy in general. Isn't that true? So like, um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that we all change over time and like what's good or bad, not only for us, but also for plants can like change over time as well. I had a friend get lactose intolerant in like a single summer because he tried to do some Russian bear like protein mix where you basically like drink like a gallon of milk like a day, <laughs> try and gain weight. And there's like some other shit that you mix in there as like a protein shake. And he got literally went from like being able to drink and eat milk with a cereal and all that stuff like normally his whole life was fine and then after just like over consuming milk at such a high rate now he like cannot have even a little bit of it so definitely uh be safe with your consumption and don't uh, ever push it too far on uh, that kind of thing 
Spartan Grown, I know this is about the time that we usually let you uh, get out of here and take care of the dogs, refill your tray, and get ready for the Michigan Bros Grow Show. If you have any final thoughts and shout outs, I'd love to hear it before you get going. Yeah. Um, shout out to, I think it's Warren, Michigan, that probably got hit one of the hardest. There's a couple other ones. But they got, we've been having, my dog is freaking out over here. But uh, I feel like a hairball. That sounds like a croaking sound, honestly. That's the pug, isn't it? I can yeah, tell that's a pug. It's like a reverse sneeze. Oh my gosh. I don't know what, what's going on there. <laughs> uh, I don't know, man. That's freaking me out. Um, shout out to the people that are underwater, man. So my heart goes out to you guys. Um, shout out to chat. I think Quibby's going to make it. Shout out to chat. Uh, they were keeping me very entertained today. And uh, shout out to everybody here on the, on the panel. I fucking love hanging out with you guys. I say this every, but you know, it's just, I don't know if, if I die tomorrow, at least I know I said that I fucking love being here guys. So there you go. <laughs> Catch me in about uh, 15 minutes. I'll be on Michigan Rose Grow show. We love having you buddy. It's always our pleasure every single week. Uh, we appreciate you coming back and uh, giving the community lots of love and interacting in the chat, both uh, live here and on the panel and everything. It's uh, great to have you each week. Yeah, you stimulate us, Spartan. <laughs> He's the most stimulating. Man. Thanks. All the stimulation. Well, one thing we talked about a little bit earlier in the show, I uh, did some share screen on, but I didn't actually um, talk it out. And I realized that we actually have more podcast listeners than I realized. It's actually way more than who actually listen on YouTube. So it's imperative that I uh, upload this afterwards. So I'm going to start doing that directly after the show each week. I'll cut out like a little 15 or 30 minutes, but here we go. Um, light information. So this is something I kind of wanted to show because when I built my light, um, I had a few things in mind that kind of heavily weighed on why I picked the colors. You can see right here, it's a Cobb LED. You've got the 3500K white on the sides. And then there's 660 red on these circles with um, a little bit of 440 blue. And this little cutout kind of explains um, the scientific stuff, like the chlorophyll and all that formation. But essentially, it gets down to just um, it limits a little bit of stretch, and it stimulates secondary metabolite production, which uh, and also increases the amount of anthocyanin in the pigments. So that can lead to increases in terpenes as well as color. So just a little bit of blue is uh, able to do that, even if you're not using UV. If you want to use a little bit more 440, um, let me go back. I think it gives the exact range. 430 to 450. I have a 440 nanometer um, that stimulates that. But like we're talking about, it's more of just a triggering something. I got to go full screen so we can actually read this. Uh, then it is to stimulate the plant's growth as a whole. So this is more of a, just like a bolt-on to your system. And then when we go into the 640 to 680, that's the red light. I was calling it uh, far red earlier versus deep red. Uh, far red is the 700 to 800. And this is uh, I'm going to let it kind of flash by pretty quick because it's too uh, much for me to read. But anybody who's watching African Paws and go back and look at some of this information, I just think it's worth showing. The other thing that um, I do with my lights is I give a little bit of a sunrise and sunset. So they get 15 minutes of the full combination of red, blue, and uh, far red before the lights on and lights off. And I'm not sure if the blue has any interference with like the Emerson effect or anything, but it seems to uh, keep plants just happy and healthy. So. I just wanted to show off some of that stuff about the light information because we did get kind of deep into it. It shouldn't. Adding other kinds of light shouldn't have an effect on that. Because I look at like the sunsets and sunrises and nature and you see like 
each night it kind of almost looks a little bit different, but there's like a pretty red spectrum and with there's blues and all sorts of different well, things. That, it, we actually can deal with that based on wavelength. I mean, th that's why the sunsets are usually red. Um, it's because as the sun goes around sort of the curve of the planet, um, the shorter wavelengths aren't able to sort of bend around that, but the reds, um, the longer wavelength light is able to bend around that and, and you'll see the red longer after the other light gets filtered out by the, the planet itself, literally. Um, so the, at, those, at those times, you would want the, the higher numbers, the 700s or the 600s. Um, in sunrise and sunset in a natural situation, if you're trying to mimic that, there really wouldn't be a lot of the, the low wavelength light, like the three to 500. Yeah, there's just a touch, tiny, tiny touch of blue, but uh, it's pretty predominantly, as you saw, uh, red. It, it almost but I, I like still don't think, I mean, that, that gets back to like, is mimicking that as like, giving it some of that red light in particular at those times could potentially shorten the amount of, of um, SCOTO period that the plant would require to maintain its flowering. Um, but I know you give a longer dark period anyways, right? So Yeah, so some people would push 13 hours of light because they yeah. have the ability to, like you said, uh, basically extend the light period and have a shorter dark period so yeah. you could run 11 hours dark and still be in flowering because that 730 triggers um basically the plant to this is oversimplifying it but it's kind of like making it go to sleep quicker and like waking up a little bit quicker and it allows you to basically get an extra hour worth of light i personally have seen whether it was uh, 13 on or 12 on and 11 on and i did those three comparisons the 11 hours on for me has always shown the most broad expression from one phenotype to the next even if i'm running like the same group of seeds i notice more color coming out of plants i notice a little bit more of just like the uh, smells and aromas and things like that so i think uh, giving it a little bit longer dark cycle dj shorts referred to it as like hawaiian style or island style i don't know what the exact science is behind it but i really like the 11 on 13 off um, yeah, the amount of light yeah I'm getting, I, I just think it's important to point out that the other side of that is you're giving it about well, what is that eight percent less energy the, the thing that you can do to overcome that is, I guess, drive your par just a slightly bit higher. So you get a, small, mm, a similar deal. Nah, well, I mean, you can't, then you could have driven your par slightly higher for the longer period of time too. Um, so it doesn't, it's not actually true that you can drive the PPFD higher because you have a shorter period of time. Um, I'm not saying like higher as a maximum. I'm saying like higher than you maybe would have if you were running like a 12-12. Like yeah, if I have it set to like 900 12, versus 800. Too. Yeah, no, it's I agree. Not an actual There's not a maximum that I'm worried about hitting. It's more that I'm trying to provide a longer dark period because I think right. the dark period is what is actually leading to the phenotypic expression that I'm, I'm noticing. I think it's like a recovery, maybe. I don't know what. Yeah, no, I get it. Dark, I, I think but... there's a point to it. I just think there's a pro and a con. And, and the pro may be some of the, the expressions or some of the growth patterns that you're noticing or some of the ways that the, the cannabinoids exist in the plant, right? In the final harvested product. Um, Absolutely, but definitely not yield. I but would yeah, say like I, if there you push is more light, you're going to get more yield. If you run the lights for shorter periods of time, you're going to be compromising some yield. Yeah, and I, I what I realized was I the amount that I lost by not running the 12 hours on was uh, less significant to me compared to the quality I gained from yeah, an extra hour. Of absolutely, it's a, and I it think is it would a trade be for me though. too. I just think I just like to point out those those trade-offs. You know what I mean? Because it's not just a win-win. It's a win, but this is the price that you pay for it. 
Absolutely. And I think that that's a beauty of uh, cultivation is I saw a video of some guy who just my brother or a friend is getting into cultivation and they sent me a video that this guy won a bunch of cups and um, they had a quote in the video and they're talking about how cannabis and many other things growing. It's sort of like the mix of uh, art and science because there is definitely a lot of science to it and there's more every single day. We're getting more information and better understanding, but there's also a little bit of like the uh, individual cultivators touch, whether it's the lighting they use, the soil, the hydroponic nutrients or whatever it is. There's the whole uh, je ne sais quoi, as they say in France, like uh, something that we can't really describe, but it's there that is uh, important. Sorry, go ahead, Tao. Or crystals added to the soil. Oh yeah, the crystals is what does it. There you go. I think I was definitely a observer effect bias online, but like the first three times I tried crystals with like one crystal plant versus non-crystal plant, I moved it around because I thought like, oh, that's just the best spot in the room. Like the far right plant was the best plant and then the far left plant was the best plant. I'm like, what's going on here? Is it the crystal? And now I just give them all crystals just in case because you never know. <laughs> so uh, lithium they quartz is the one that I like. So It's not going to hurt them. So and it's pennies. So yeah, that's what I do. It's not necessarily proven. Like a little extra yeah. aeration at worst, right? It, yeah, it reminds me of um, uh, somebody was talking about like 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 uh, uh, like medical herbs and, and other sorts of like uh, medicinal products. Like to me, if it's if it doesn't cost a lot, and if it's um, yeah, if it if it doesn't cost a lot and it's not going to like harm you, you know, like as far as we know, there aren't there aren't any associations with that. Then you know, go for it. You know, if it makes you happier, like like for example, for example, I feel healthier to some degree, because I drink a lot of tea and I don't drink a lot of soda and other sorts of things. And there's empirical things related to that, but also, you know, how much health benefit I'm really getting while well, I'm not really tracking it and not being scientific, but um, it's not super expensive and it tastes crystals pretty good. Crystals can be though. Be careful with the damn crystals. That's true. That's get true. Real Rubies expensive, and, real fast. Precious crystals. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, uh, uh, align your chakras on a budget maybe. <laughs> Yeah, and a little bit goes a long way. I had tiny, tiny little lithium quartz uh, that a, a Rifa Mamacita sent to me as a gift. And um, I put that, that one seems to even now, when I've given every single pot, a uh, little lithium quartz crystal, the one that she sent me is like the one. It's got the fucking power. It's always the happiest plant. But again, I think that's an observer effect. And uh, on top of that, kind of taking like placebo effect and using it to the positive. If you know you're the type of person who kind of believes in a little bit of this uh, more out there kooky stuff, even like writing positive names on the plant, like happy, smile, uh, good, or whatever. Like there's been studies that have been done on different plants where people, if they write a positive term on it versus a negative term on it, they just like tend to take better care of it. And the plant ends up being a healthier, happier plant. So whatever you have to do to coax yourself into being the best cultivator possible to make the happiest, healthiest plants and your happiest, healthiest person because uh, your own enjoyment and uh, that plays a big role into it as well. You want to be happy while you're doing this. It shouldn't be a miserable, arduous process. Yeah, uh, don't forget the, um, you know, several episodes back, we talked about, uh, or I talked about uh, metamaterials and how moths, their little scales, little hair-like scales on their wings um, have a particular color, a particular size and shape um, that make them able to, by a metamaterial, I mean that they interact in different kind of physical spheres, physics, you know, spheres of physics, right? Um, because they actually work to dampen um uh, sonic waves when they come towards them so they're like an anti they're like anti-stealth or they're yeah they're stealth technology <laughs> if i wanted to be really uh you know 
um, you know, uh, exaggerative. I might say something like that, but like, that's how they adapted against uh, bat, um, you know, sonic waves, like echolocate. So like, there are things out there that I have no doubt can be applied in a practical way that might seem like magic now, um, just like uh, transport, well, maybe not transporters, but just like uh, cell phones and like Star Trek, you know, people like to make that association all the time and, and radios and that sort of a thing. It's I don't magic wrong with transport. 200 years ago. They're right now talking about um, the VTOL, a vertical takeoff and landing devices that are basically like human flying drones. Oh yeah, F-35, F-35 baby. But like even less sophisticated, like they have like basically what looks like a golf cart with a bunch of like buzzers on the top. But people are like, oh, there's too much noise pollution. And then there's like an engineer like from Monroe who has figured out a basically silent blade. So when they're flying, like you're talking about, like you can borrow technology from nature or have good engineers that discover ways to fly silently. This is definitely mm-hmm. a super off topic, topic, but we're about to wrap it up. So uh, <laughs> definitely we're going to see some things changing in the future. And uh, I think people would be surprised like... Um, the amount of distance between cars is actually a lot closer than like if we were to fly, there's a lot more free space and like the FAA, although it's not the best organization has a pretty decent regulation of like the airspace. And I think that we're going to see in our lifetimes, like flying cars, so to speak. So uh, that's something I think people should look out for because there's a lot of it. You can go on YouTube right now and look up like top 10 VTOLs and after the show, and uh, you'll be pretty blown away by all the fascinating shit that's just on the horizon. Yeah, in Dubai, they have uh, drone taxis on the top of skyscrapers right now. Yeah, I believe it. They're uh, getting more and more popular. And as with technology, cost is only typically goes down over time and it gets better and better, more safety and uh, things like that. So it's going to be cool to see. But with that being said, we're coming up to that last uh, five minutes. So I want to pass it over first to Dr. MJ Coco to give his final thoughts and shout out. Hey guys, I actually also want to do a little bit of an announcement if I can. Just when we came on the air, um, we did a giveaway over at Cocoa for Cannabis and um, Zolaire, who is actually Z0LAIRE um, on Instagram, won. So congratulations to Zolaire, um, won a MF2000, Maxson MF2000. Um, and we are doing the same giveaway again this week. We'll do another drawing next Sunday. Um, all you have to do is go to the deals and discounts page and register to win on Cocoa for Cannabis. So check that out. Guys, um, this was a lot of fun. I, I really had a lot of fun in this episode. Maybe it was because I just got to talk about a bunch of things that I really enjoyed talking about. But I got to talk about a bunch of things that I really enjoyed talking about. So I had fun. Um, thank you to the rest of the panelists who show up every week. Jack, thank you always for putting the show together and, and keeping the the show running and all of that. Thanks to all, everybody in the chat. Thanks to everybody from the Coco for Cannabis community that comes over and supports our show. And um, yeah, sign up for our, our new uh, Grower Love giveaway, we're calling it. And uh, I will see you guys next week. Grower Love. Thank you so much for joining us, Doc. Next up, we have staff writer at Skunk Magazine and many other uh, amazing uh, places he publications, uh, publishes his information, uh, Matthew Gates. Go ahead and give your final thoughts and shout out. I want to echo that sentiment. Um, I really appreciate the support. I saw a lot of people. I uh, don't think I don't see you, but I, I see you. A lot of people from chat, a lot of names I recognize. I see you here. And I saw you at the Future Canvas Project. Uh, Chad, for example, I saw you there. Uh, various others. So I really appreciate the support. Um, and I want to, to just shout out the chat and say that I appreciate it. That um, I really enjoyed the topics we talked about as well, especially Dr. MJ. Coco and is a, a very adroit insight about um, 
about light, something that I also still need to learn a little bit about. And you can always find my information on my YouTube channel, Zenthanol. I'm going to be publishing a lot more stuff on YouTube uh, in general. Um, so check that out. You can also check me out and come to my uh, Discord uh, patrons on, uh, on patreon.com slash Zenthanol. Thank you so much for joining us as always. I am going to link all that good stuff in the um, information down below after this goes live. Uh, the whole video gets published, as most of you are already aware. And I write up a little description, and I'm starting to include some information of what we talked about throughout the show and uh, who was here that week, all of their social medias and all that good stuff. But uh, last and certainly not least, I surprised them at the beginning of the show by starting with them, but I'm going to finish it off with the American one. Jack, as always, great hosting tonight. Thanks. And thanks to the panel. And yeah, shout out to the panel. We got a lot of people doing a lot of stuff. Uh, Russ Brandon apparently has a new location for his Bokashi Earthworks, which is awesome. And yeah, ETG and Cocoa for Cannabis. And shout out to chat. It's always good checking in and seeing all the familiar people. And um, yeah, I'm the American one on YouTube and the American one underscore with underscore Ekeens on the IG if you want to hit me up and uh yeah thanks for coming out everyone thank you for joining us and uh last week we got like a hundred percent ratio of only thumbs up and i was like kind of like joking that like oh you know we got these few comments like kind of complaining that it's too much ipm or too much jack but uh the community really supported and it was cool to see literally not a single thumbs down last week and uh, a lot of positive comments both in the live chat and after the show so thank you all so much for coming and supporting myself and the panel we do our best to put out uh, the best cultivation information that we can for you each week we're all learning together and uh, i think this is a really fun place for us to kind of come and bounce topics off the wall and, and see kind of how everybody feels about them. And we all kind of get a little bit better together and it brings out some really cool and interesting stuff each week. So I enjoy it uh, greatly. It's uh, inspired me and made me a better grower over time. If you want to contact me, you can find me at Jack Greenstock on Cannabuzz as well as uh, Instagram. I'm also Jack underscore Greenstock on Twitter. And if you want a copy of my book, 50 strains of green, you can go to 50 strains.com and get yourself a copy there. So thank you all so much for coming. It's been a wonderful week. I look forward to seeing you all next week. Uh, Jack Greensock, signing out. Grower love, everyone.